Good afternoon, everybody. Scott Stevens here with a weekly or biweekly show, another perspective where we get to enjoy and talk about some of these other topics that are just outside of the weather. Uh, which is kind of what I'm most familiar with. I see you coming on in there. Thank you, uh, Vicky and the and the gang that's showing up on Facebook. And those that in hashtag replay will be able to see it on the other platforms. And this topic, honestly, I'm a little bit nervous to address. Uh, how the, uh, the George Floyd issue is evolving, whether it was a, a, a false or fake incident designed to create outrage. And as you kind of go through life and become a little older, it almost gets to the point where it truly doesn't matter if it was fake, false, false flag, or an organic experience. Because even if the false flaggers, if we want to call them that, they are taking advantage or using an already uh, hot issue to bring about uh, a change. And so the question then larger is, what is the larger agenda? And this is kind of where I want to go with this, because there is never a time when an incident as large as, the, as this and as polarizing as this is that cannot be used to bring about change for the betterment of all of us. Hey, Robin, Risa, Vicky's back, and Luna Rose. Glad to see you all there. Yeah, Luna with a hashtag false flag attack. And it's hard to imagine that, you know, from the evidence I have seen, that there aren't questions as to the circumstances surrounding this uh, this event, because that is that it, there's obviously something going on there. But nevertheless, it has brought us to a point where we're having to address a long-standing issue, and that is the police and what we do with the police and what the police have done to us, whether white, black, brown, rich, poor, there is there is a, a, an issue, a, a friction that always exists when you see the lights go on behind you. Even as a law-abiding citizen, regardless of color, your stomach isn't doesn't come up into your throat or dropping down deep because you're excited for the experience. It's like, okay, what do I have to do to get through this and remain in one piece? What is this, this experience going to cost me? What can go wrong? What can go right? And on YouTube, there are many experiences where it goes terribly wrong. And then there are others where it's like, oh, that worked out. I didn't expect to see that one happen. And it really depends in so many ways on how that officer addresses the situation. So I want to, you know, we're kind of on on the verge of, uh, of literally an aspect of revolution in this country. And we're going to come on up here and I'm going to share the screen. And Vicky, for you this morning, we, uh, we go to screen share. And then in the far right corner, there's either a big button or, you know, with, with the two characters right there and uh, on the side, and you begin to share with me in, in the picture in picture. Both work. Both work. All right. The people are under, are under arms tonight because they hope for justice tomorrow. Some go about saying it is not worthwhile, but this is because they vaguely sense that this insurrection threatens many things that would continue to stand if all took place otherwise. And deeper in the book, The Plague, written by Camus in 1947, a book that I had to read for college, and I'll be honest with you, it took me a little work to get through. 
And I, I was so fascinated by it that I even read it outside of school so I could, I could finish it. I could digest it without the pressure of, you know, you know when you have to do something for class, uh, you, you got to pay attention and rather than just enjoying it or reading it to enjoy it. But it was the plague. And it was about a situation where in Algiers, where this, this author, Camus, was, was located and he wrote the book in 47, that results in an insurrection due to quarantine and then the military having to stomp out the plague that was was impacting that area. So uh, what I really want to do and kind of why I'm, I'm partially a little nervous for this show because you know, we've all had experiences, you know, with cops. And, and I know that even on the show right now, we have, ha have someone, Vicky, Vicky has some experience with that, but what kind of got my attention and I've evolved how I've thought about this over the last, uh, in, indeed 48 hours, because this experience with George Floyd, with Minneapolis, with the Minneapolis PD, and, and then how this insurrection, if you want to use those words, has spread across this country and indeed across the planet, that we all have felt, those of us that are at least in our 20s and 30s, how the police state has more greatly impacted our lives year after year after year, that what felt like whether it was or not, is still up for debate, a free country now necessarily isn't so. And I'll be honest with you, there are states that I would be as a white man, but just as an out-of-state person, not be comfortable traversing because of civil asset forfeiture laws. Louisiana, one of them. Tennessee, potentially another. Oklahoma, certainly another. These are states that I would have trepidation entering those borders. And I have lived in Oklahoma. But when you realize the power that whether it's the state legislature or they has been granted them by federal edict by um, what they call a, uh, statute laws, that they can empty your debit card just from a device. That to me is not cool. That is not cool. So this is something that I had, I would honestly be concerned about. Now, losing your life is a whole other situation. So Minneapolis city council members announced an intent to disband the Minneapolis police department. And this was a city council vote of out of 13 members. They have a veto proof vote of nine to what would that be for? Nine to four. And so they can overrule the mayor's uh, veto. They've got that kind of a, a two thirds majority, super majority. And there's another aspect of this, even though they may want to do that, there are still conditions upon Minneapolis's ability to claw back the money that is spent because there's already laws on the books that tied to the population of Minneapolis that there has to be a police force commensurate in size to the population of Minneapolis. And right now that number is about 700, upper 700, 790 somewhat. Whereas right now MSP has 888 law enforcement officers on the, on the payroll that are, are, are uniformed and, and and at work. So how would you go about this? I'm just going to kind of roll up through here through Twitter because I kind of spent the night last night watching, watching the riots, partially me being disgusted at how violent they had gotten, but then realizing that this is not a new issue. This is absolutely not a new problem. And just my previous experience with not wanting to, to drive through states because of the militarization, the aggressive 
resource, you know, stealing. You you five miles an hour of the speed limit, two miles an hour of the speed limit. In some ways, it doesn't matter what your offense may be. In their eyes, a probable cause or a reason to pull someone over is simply enough. And once they have you, how do you get that hook out of your mouth? So, Josh Cohen, wow, I'm interested to see what what the uh, what they what they may replace it with, and hopefully we can see a successful model for the rest of the country. And I, I'm kind of like I'm, I'm with that. What happens? How would you disband a police department? Who do you call if you need a nine one one? Who do you you know? How would you go ab- about that process? And I I'm, I'm very curious about Luna Rose. I lived in. Now let's pop this over here. I can I can do that. We have capabilities. I lived in Minneapolis for what. For what's and honestly, this new police reform isn't going to go well. I gotta wonder. You know, I I, I ha- have to wonder. And then John, thanks so much for sharing over the years. You're one of the few that I actually trust your opinion and research. Thank you for that, John. Um, you know, and and this is these are all topics. If I'm going to talk about it, it's something that I, it, I'm not approaching lightly. And I, if we're going to talk about it, then we have to have solutions because this is not just a, a problem in Minneapolis or in New York City or in New Orleans or Detroit or or in Colorado where I am. This is a big problem. So this is, wow, well, I'm interested to see what they may replace it with and hopefully we can see a successful model. All right. First responders and firefighters rely on the police to secure areas so they can help people. So this person obviously expecting the police to show up on scene, deal with traffic flow around maybe a roadside accident. So these first responders, the, the, the EMS could show up, or if it's a fire, that you need to be able to manage traffic and get people out of the way so that the firemen, so the fire department can show up and then begin to deploy their assets on the 911 call on the fire. So I can see where you've got to have these two agencies as they already are, you know, w- working together. And we'll get into some of these videos. I've got some of them highlighted. This is another curious point that Matt brings up. What would be the replacement to replacing the police department? And he throws in Sharia law. Because if you look at immigration from where we have those 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 higher populations of Islamists, of, of Muslims, and into the United States, the Great Lakes states, have received a, a large preponderance of that of of that population, and it's not like we don't already have some in Congress that are Muslim. And so, if if you look at a man on the street interview, people, you know, what, what would you prefer to be live under, or whose law is greatest, the Constitution or Sharia law? And every single interview, whether it's biased or not, or, or whether I just haven't looked at enough of them, they're all replying Sharia law because it's God's law, which inevitably and hierarchically is above man's law, which would be the Constitution. So they're saying, well, they have that already. You don't know what you're seeing, what some of these rogue cops are already doing. And there's there's the possibility of that. Yeah, the Minneapolis City Council is interested to see what they themselves will replace it with. So they know they've got a problem and they are going to actively begin to defund, probably deal with the statutes, deal with the consequences of bringing back the the Minneapolis PD, but they don't have no plan at the moment just like a, a virtue signaling regarding the consequences. Change is needed, but no and no one disputes that. But dismantling the whole thing, 
That's not it. And so we have to look at Camden, Virginia. And I'm going to open this story because we have to go through it because this is an option. And as I read this last night, okay, I can see why they're protesting and I can see why they're, they are willingly to begin to, uh, to go here, Cadman. All right. So when Cat, Camden, New Jersey's police Scott, J. Scott Thompson, joined the police force as an officer 25 years ago. There were 175 open-air drug markets just lining nine square miles of streets. Their murder rate in the city of just 75,000 across the Delaware River from Philadelphia regularly climbed to more than six times the national average. Criminals operated with impunity. And that, folks, is what they're afraid of. That if you don't have police, armed police, walking patrolling this criminal element or criminal, and they're criminal only by the laws that we have on the books. If we didn't have those laws on the books, then obviously they wouldn't be criminal. So which comes first? We have the laws to deal with the criminals and then the police force to enforce the laws. Or do we have this activity that somebody feels moralistically should be in place? We pass the laws and then all of a sudden we have criminals where we didn't have criminality before because we didn't have the laws to say they were criminals. And then once we have laws to to create criminals, then we have to have a police force. We have to have a justice system. And then we have to have some means of punishment. Is that punishment then just prisons? Is it community service? Is it a a, a fine? What then is the punishment for this newly invented criminal activity? So it becomes a chicken and egg and we begin to run um, this circular logic. All right, back to the story. After a particular deadly year in 1995, Camden's Cathedral of Immaculate Conception began illuminating one candle for each homicide victim. In 2012, the year ended with 67 candles, a rate of about 87 murders per 100,000 residents, which ranked Camden fifth nationwide. But on New Year's of 18, just 22 candles were lit as the city's murder rate fell to its lowest level since 1987. The number of annual killings has been in decline since 2012. So have robberies? aggravated assaults, violent crimes, property crimes, and non-fatal shooting incidents. So what's happening in this city for which so many years has been deemed among the most dangerous in America, Thompson, who took the helm of the police force in 2008, said the biggest factor may have been the change in the structure of the department itself. In 13, the police department was disbanded, reimagined, and born again as the Camden County Police Department with more officers at a lower pay and a strategic shift toward community policing. This meant focusing on rebuilding trust between the community and their officers. And maybe this can happen in smaller communities where, like where I am, you know the sheriff, you know the deputies. There is a relationship And when you have a relationship with that police force, then you can begin to have a free flowing of information. So those in the neighborhoods can communicate the problems real or, you know, perceived or real or imagined. The cop is going to have enough interaction with the community that can begin to discern what is really happening. And when you can see what's happening, then the police force can go to the judge, get search warrants set up surveillance, and begin to surveil on that area. All right, so for us to make the neighborhood look and feel the the way everyone wanted it to, it wasn't going to be achieved by having a police officer with a helmet 
and a shotgun standing on a corner, Thompson said. Now he wants his officers to, quote, to identify more with being a police corps than with special forces. So the conversation with Thompson about community policing is likely to involve many such catchy maximums. Destabilized communities, he told me, need guardians, not warriors. He explained that the back to the future paradox to use technology wisely, but pair it with regular old fashioned bobbies on the street. And he stressed the idea of public safety is about access to social services, economic rejuvenation and good schools, not just cops. And he says nothing stops a bullet like a job like a job. And so when you have um, a a community that prospers, a a community where they're invested in their jobs, you know, it it begins to make things. So uh, yeah, it's more like a protect and serve approach dealing with residents rather than kicking down doors and locking your way out of the problem, said Moran. There's some really good quotes down here that I may or may not get to, but um, the community, it became a community responsive to the community. The criminal justice system he enumerates on some core principles to get people on your side, such as a police officer, be transparent about why you're pulling them over, sell the stop and explain how your job works, knock on doors, walk on the streets in Camden. That approach seems to be showing results. So we're beginning to see some, some communities that have, um, you know, come to the end of the road where what has, what they have used in the past simply wasn't working any longer. So they had to find another solution. Camden tried it and the violent rate in Camden, and this is a contrary report, is 16,380 per 100,000 people. That is still 344% higher than the national rate of 368.9 per 100,000 people. So it doesn't answer everything. And to be fair to Camden, the process is, is evolving. It's just underway. But when the new police officer stepped in and just realizing what we've been doing is not working. So we've got to come up with a different kind of solution. So the question is, will 911 still work? Isn't that the question? So I'm going to trust that you can hear this and we're going to start this over because this is kind of a, kind of a, a, a rather curious uh, commentary between these two. And I will maximize it so we can get a little better view. All right. I don't know if you could hear that. Yes, no. Luna said no, but um, I can post it on the story on on the storyboard of this once we're done. Um, but what she what she's basically saying is that what we do instead of instead of just sending have having one homogenized police force to respond to every single call doesn't matter. And it was funny because Vicky we had had a discussion a couple uh, a couple of weeks ago that your beat cops have to deal with humanity's garbage. You're just you you're just in garbage. You know, you you every little domestic call, every fight, every uh every drunken encounter, you know, with with fights between property lines, between mowing and not mowing, you know, with with the crap. And so they become the garbage men. And so if every call you get to go out on is that kind of call, it would be exhausting. You would just be mentally exhausting. And I, and I can certainly get to that and I can understand why that you've got your, your temper when maybe the rest of us have got this much patience that, you know, the somebody that shows up is, you know, just only has this much left. But what the gals were saying 
was that we largely had to send out and deploy a different kind of person to go to these responses. And that's what is important. So I'm not from the US, but as an outsider, I'll say this. Demilitarized policing is the start. Ditch the gas masks first, and then you can't use tear gas. Then have every police officer have their number on their shoulder and helmet. And this guy seems to think, Andrew, that this is a starting point. And then the other one packs heart. I'm pretty sure this is how they got Muslim-controlled no-go zones in France and Sweden. Hmm. And they have those zones, and they weren't there 10 years ago. So that is, you know, this this could be an issue. And when you have that population, as we mentioned, that's interested in getting Sharia law in place, if you take out the police and you realign what their calls will be, there may be some calls that they just they just don't want to take. All right. So this other person, if a cop shoots, if a co- if cops shoot tear, tear gas at you, that's crowd control. But if you pick it up and throw it back, that's assault with a deadly weapon. And so this is something where there's there's two tiers of justice, two tiers straight up. I do something. It's one thing. If they do something, it's another. If I were to take the life of a person and they're to take the life of a person, what's the difference? What truly is the difference? And so it's not like that they're not with us, and you probably can't hear that. But we end up with an aspect of the population of the police force where they want to show solidarity, that they recognize that there's a problem. And so they'll, in a way, take the knee. And and just, in a way, it's it's true submission to the protesters that they're the, the aspect of their uh, of their grievances is as absolutely valid, and you know I, you can't argue with that. All right, this is pretty wild, but we also can't wait for social scientists and criminologists to study the effects over time of going forward to try to see what might work for best for the communities such as Minneapolis City, for the Minneapolis City Council members, and, ta- and, and announce their intent to disband the police department. And this, for me, is is a truly um, grand experiment. And if they can make it work, even, even in like the first year or two, this movement has gotten to the point and the crimes against the people, against the citizens have been so egregious, but I can definitely see this, this taking a, a bigger move to where we see more cities, more states, more municipalities, uh, beginning to go down this road. And then there's the kind of like the political correctness backlash. This guy, Frazier Nelson, who's a blue checker, it's a loss from the New York Times. Let's just say today, let's come on here. Let's do this story because the New York Times announced today that James Bennett, the editorial page editor since May of 16, is resigning effective immediately. And that Katie Kingsbury, who joined the Times in 2017, has been named as the acting editorial director. And I have seen a couple of stories in the last... 24, 48 hours, where if you don't bend the knee to the protesters, your job is at risk. If you don't say the right things, you will, let's, uh, you know, you've got to, to bend the knee to to the mob in a way. And, and in, in many ways, we're seeing the, 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 the rioters, the protesters become rioters, become looters and so forth. So this has progressed in a, in many ways, an unsavory and I can see how, if it were to get much more out of touch, much more violent, that you will begin to turn off those that are sympathetic of your of your moves. 
So what's happened is the New York Times uh, reposted, uh, uh, let's see, James Cotton, Jim Cotton, excuse me. No, uh, Tom Cotton, who was a senator from Arkansas, I believe, had uh, an op-ed posted. Uh, it was published by the New York Times over the weekend. And there was such a backlash that the editor uh, of the editorial department of the New York Times had to submit his resignation for allowing that contrary point of view. And this is what I talked about in, in our first show on, on censorship, that we are so wedded to a movement, so attached to the movement, so clear-cutting the movement that anything standing that opposes that, that clear-cutting, that mob, that point of view cannot be heard. And so we lose the ability to have a discussion. And if it goes this far to the left or to the right, that it's going to be very difficult because bridges have been burnt for us to then rebuild after this event and for the and for proper redress to ha actually happen with this community. So this is awful. 17 years ago, Howell Raines had to quit as a member of the New York Times because of a reporter he had championed made up stories and other reporters were rightly furious. Today, James Bennett had to quit because his page ran an op-ed from a senator that made reporters mad. So we've got this politically correct mob that is now pushed so far that A, we're re we're, we're, we've attacked uh Office, you know, police officers, they're not able or allowed to do the job because this has happened in such, a, in such an incredibly incomplete way. New York Times' James Bennett is a smart guy, says Howard Kurtz, former editor of The Atlantic. His instinct was right in running the Tom Cotton op-ed, even though he disagreed with it. Losing his job seems to be a harsh penalty and reinforces the idea that running dissenting views is verboten in this environment. So how do we heal? If we cannot maintain a sense of balance, a sense of neutrality, it becomes almost impossible to get back on our feet, even as a people, because you've got these mobs that can be whipped up so quickly, and, and the damage goes all the way from buildings, stores, to uh, traffic disruption, to now the tops of these, uh, of these editorial boards. And I, as I started with the show, all of it can be used for the betterment. It's it's a plow coming into a field field and turning over the soil. So we're beginning to see the worms underneath. We're beginning to see what's creepy and crawly underneath that. And it it's not all bad. It's not, well, it's just, it's definitely not all bad. It's going to give us an opportunity to reimagine policing. And this, I promise you, will be a big deal as we go through the election coming up in, what, four months, five months? And with Joe Biden, that candidate who was a huge advocate of the nineteen mid nineteen nineties uh, police bill, that's going to be uh, something that he's going to have to dance very clearly around because there's a lot of footage of him on the floor of the Senate arguing for the passage of the bill and and the police uh, and the prison reform, which obviously has to happen. California three strikes, you're out. When you when you when judges are given an ultimatum, when somebody comes before them at the bench, and they don't have a choice because it may be their third offense, and if you're dealing with police corruption, what is truly their third offense? You know, it's it, we, the judges are bound, and so they're stuck to the letter of the law rather than using what would be their given authority to discern what is proper and right for those in front of the bench, and that would be the spirit of the law. You know, the little bit of humanity. And the code, the U.S. code and these state codes for these 
offenses is too strict. And that has overflowed our prisons and uh, given the judges no ability for leniency, for mercy, for other options, which may be better serving, which would obviously be better serving the community. All right, everybody, that's um, probably where we are for the day. And I know uh, I'll be back on Wednesday. We'll talk about, maybe we'll talk about this uh, a little bit more depending on where the discussion ends up. But um, regardless, as we move through this election season, this is absolutely going to be one of those uh, hot button topics. And uh, I really would like to see community policing come to fruition. Maybe the consciousness of this society and other societies, other countries, whether it's Britain, Australia, France, uh, Italy, uh, you know, that, that we can move to a more police officer kind of um, kind of option. Maybe that's a little too Pollyanna and, and maybe it won't work. Maybe the, the, the crisis with the economy and the militarization of the police has just gotten too far. And this thing has to blow up a little bit harder before we'll back off it. And that allow these other softer solutions where we can personally take a little more responsibility for our actions out of the street. It's curious. I just saw a video today of these these protesters, you know, throwing a rock in a car. He went by. The guy in the, in the vehicle was not happy about it. So he did a U-turn, came back up, and what did the, 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 the protesters do? They wanted to call the police to help them out of a situation that they created so where we're so used to social media, we're being we're so used to mouthing off and and literally smacking people through social media and not expecting any repercussions. But in the real world, sometimes repercussions can happen far more quickly than you would expect. All right, everybody, uh, keep looking up, and we'll see you. We'll see you on Wednesday. We'll do the little weather show coming up at 7 o'clock tonight, Mountain Time, where we've got a tropical storm that uh, headed on in there. In fact, I'm going to show you this freaky old cloud. Look at this guy. Somebody shared that. Uh, that was a couple of days ago. I have no explanation for that kind of a cloud formation. All that tells me is something is going on in the world that is bigger than our imagination has yet to uh, has yet to grasp. And whether it's clouds, whether it's a police on the street, or just the state of the world of 2020, which is breaking all convention, we got we to go through it together. All right, everybody, take care. I'll see you soon.